Hello and welcome back to the Sunny 16 podcast for another week of film photography based goodness. And boy, have we got an exciting show for you tonight because we've got an exclusive, a kind of exclusive, it's sort of exclusive to this podcast on the day that you're listening to it. That's a pretty good exclusive as far as I'm concerned. Uh, joining me to help with hosting duties is the one and only John Whitmore. John, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much, Graham. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. Thank you very well. Uh, it's a delight to have you here as always, uh, sat in your dark, dark shed with your very red I... hair at the moment. Um, which was... Shh! No one can see it. <laughs> and lucky them is all I can say on that front. Also joining us with very red hair, but I think his is probably more natural, it is the one and only Ethan Moses from Camera Dactyl. Ethan, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Graham. It's absolute delight to have you here. Um, it's been, oh, it's been quite a while since we last spoke. I'm trying to think what was the last thing we talked about. Can you remember? Uh, nope. I'm sure I was talking to you about something, uh, something silly. Probably <laughs> tarting around some products uh, about a year ago. Probably the Bronco Pan. The Branko Pan, there you go. So for anybody who has maybe joined us since then and hasn't heard you on the show before, um, a quick summary of Ethan and what he does. So Ethan is the founder and the and the entire staff of Camera Dactyl. <laughs> um, Camera Dactyl first leapt to everybody's attention. Oh, how many years ago are we talking now, Ethan? Is it three years since the um, your first Camera Dactyl Kickstarter? Two years. Two years. Only two years. So, um, uh, very much grabbed everyone's attention with these quite adorable uh, 3D printed um, large format cameras that came in an incredible variety of colours. Uh, they were a real delight. Um, and since then, you've gone on to be quite a powerhouse of just producing really useful stuff. So um, your butter grips, you started making grips for all sorts of different cameras, which it was very difficult to get grips for. Um, you just mentioned the Bronchopan. So explain, because you'll do a better job than I want, explain what the Bronchopan is. Um, so, okay, about a year and a half ago, I put out a 4x5 uh, handheld camera, which John has actually gotten to play with, made some videos about. Yeah, that was pretty geez. fun. Yeah. Um, and that was the Camerodactyl OG. And I, actually, that was inspired by Matthew Joseph, uh, who emailed and while I was doing my first Kickstarter and said, hey, can you make this thing? And I said, sure. Uh, the first one will cost you $5,000. The next one will be 200 bucks. And then I found myself with nothing to do. And, and I didn't know that I was going to get into making cameras sort of medium full time now. Uh, but I had some time and he put the worm in my ear. And so I built a handheld four by five camera with a focusing helix. And I have been making those for a while. And then Nick Lyle of the homemade camera podcast got me to make him, uh, the homunculus, which was a, uh, medium format camera that takes uh, Mamiya press lenses and graph or, uh, Graflex 2.3 or RB67 backs. And then, so I had made that, and a buddy of mine, Eric Bronco, um, had one Sundance for the film Clemency. He was the DP, and he got to shoot his first uh, movie on film. And he called me up and said, hey, I'm not rich yet, uh, but I would like an X-Pan 
because I want to shoot some film stills before I burn $200,000 worth of film on this next movie. Um, and so obviously I did not have an X-Pan and couldn't snap my fingers to do it, but I had made this uh, pretty clever lens mount for the Mamiya press lenses for Nick's homunculus. Um, and so I said, okay, I think I can do this. And uh, I wound up building a 35 millimeter film transport system around that lens and lens mount. And so I made this fairly complicated DIY project that you can build yourself. It's now free on GitHub. If you go to cameradactyl slash Bronco pan, you can download it for free and or donate and or buy some laser cut accessories that are not necessary for it. Um, and it's been pretty cool. I, I sold it on Kickstarter. I held it hostage and people gave me like almost $14,000 to release you know, six months worth of work, uh, <laughs> which was medium, but, um, it's been really fun watching it pop up. Um, people are building them all around the world and sending me pictures and time lapses of them building it and making videos about it. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of got a life of its own and it's fun to watch. Yeah, that's awesome. So hopefully what everybody is getting from that is that you are a, um, compulsive serial creator and inventor. Um, you, uh, don't seem to be able to stop even though yeah i got camera beaties you got camera beaties exactly and um even though you're i think part of your brain is going i probably shouldn't be doing this because this is probably a lot of work for what but you can't stop yourself um the other important part of your skill set is that you're also very talented with the um electronics and software side of things as well so you're not just very good at creating and designing cameras but you are also good at the technical side of things as well aren't you because of your day job essentially yeah so my i mean i can't uh, legally call myself an engineer i am unlicensed but uh, my day job is basically building and repairing uh, industrial mechatronics which is a fancy way of saying food packaging equipment so <laughs> i build like you know beer canning or fermenting machinery and sensors and things like that and so um traditionally i have not uh, sold any uh, electronics in a retail setting but um yeah I'm, I'm getting more into it i uh i learned a lesson or two from matt beckberger who uh, came up with a light meter from raveni labs which is amazing yeah uh, it was a light meter that i had in my dream camera journal for over two years before he released it <laughs> uh, not that he stole it from me no. like i think it was an obvious uh, an obvious thing, like there's some Chinese manufacturers making the same. And I had just like not, uh, I had not had the chutzpah to do it, right? It takes EMC testing. It's, it's a lot of work to bring an electronics to market when it's not a, you know, custom built one off. That's a lot of money for, let's say a salsa labeler. Um, and so he taught me a real lesson. I think he made like 80 or 90 grand on Kickstarter releasing that. And that was a big part of, uh, why I uh, started working on the mongoose, which I assume we'll talk about later. But um, yeah, it was a hard lesson, but it was a good lesson. And I've been a real fan of Matt Beckberger and Raveni Labs. We had him on the show a while ago. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know we we've, we haven't spoken to Matt ourselves, but we've certainly talked about the um, Raveni Light Meter because it's just, well, it's such a neat little well um well executed design isn't it it's just a great solution and that's what we're always looking for this lovely little light meter that fits in the hot shoe it's a neat 
simple and um, well put together solution. And um, I know you say that he didn't steal it from me, but I have actually heard that Matt will walk in people's dreams and pluck ideas straight out of their heads. So you might need to start wearing that tinfoil hat just in case. No, I think it was an obvious one, right? And Matt is like a real engineer. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think, you know, you can't patent an idea. You can patent an execution, right? The the work is not having a good idea. The work is actually making it and making it into a product. And he did the work and was not, uh, he wasn't going to pussyfoot around it. And uh, he, yeah, I mean, kudos to him. So it was really cool to watch. Yeah. So it sounds like seeing Matt go through that process, and he's not the only one within the community that's tackled something along those lines lately because the last year um intrepid brought out their uh enlarger their thing to turn their camera into an enlarger and again with those there's an amount of electronics and they had to go through this certification and and it's so we're sort of starting to see a few of the our analog community companies deal with these things um and that it sounds like that inspired you that maybe going through the pain of doing that was going to be worthwhile for a product for you. Is that kind of how you felt about it? Yeah, absolutely. So to, to give you an example, and, and part of it is just building the market, right? So, you know, um, I, <clears throat> I am friends with Steve Lloyd. Steve Lloyd on the surface is my competitor, right? He makes excellent cameras in a very similar style that I do, but also, you know, there's not too many of us doing it. And if there was just one option out there, that does not make a market, right? And so you have to have a bunch of uh, options out there so that people will shoot film, so that people will make film, so that uh, I can continue selling film cameras. And and so watching a lot of people enter the market has been really uh, interesting and uh, inspiring. And um, it's 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 a good sign. It means that people are getting into it, right. And building a market big enough to support a product like the Reveni labs light meter, or my new mongoose, you know, about, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, I released an analog light meter, uh, the butter meter. Um, and at the time it would have been easier to design smaller, lighter, cheaper, quicker to produce more accurate and have more of a range had I made a digital light meter, but I made it analog just to get around a lot of uh, FCC testing and to be able to release like a small product. And, you know, eventually that became way too expensive to produce. It was a lot of tiny soldering by hand. Um, but, you know, watching companies like Intrepid put out um, uh, the, the light back to turn their cameras or any camera really into an enlarger or, or again, Matt is, is just sort of, you know, proof that uh, they've put a McDonald's on the corner and I can build a Burger King. Is that better or worse? I'm never sure. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I hear a lot of conflicting uh, reports. <laughs> they're both medium. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't eaten out in almost six months now. They're, yeah, they're both 14K Fans for a six-month investment of time. Um, yeah. Okay, you've you said the word <laughs> mongoose uh, a couple of times now. And whilst once you've explained to me... <laughs> <laughs> what the mongoose is and why it's called the mongoose it made some sense but i am prepared to guess that anybody who has not already seen the little teaser video that you've put out is going to have no clue what the mongoose is so this seems like a very opportune moment to explain what the mongoose is sure the mongoose is a big angry gerbil that eats king hope <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you're bringing to market <laughs> Yes, for 1993 easy payments of 1995, you too can have an angry rodent who eats snakes. Um, <laughs> we definitely no, need I, some of those in the UK. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, okay, so um, this was an idea I had in my dream journal, uh, of long, my, my camera dream journal for a long time and kind of finally put it together. Maybe we'll get into that story. But basically, it's an automated negative carrier for 35-millimeter film that can detect the edges of frames, uh, scroll and align those frames within a film gate, and then trigger an attached camera. So using a tripod and a light box or a flash or a copy stand um, for you know, camera scanning, or they used to call it DSLR scanning or mirrorless scanning, um, with a mirrorless camera and a macro lens and uh, the mongoose, you can scan film uh, really, really quickly, uh, much like a Paycon or Frontier or a Noritsu scanner, which is ungodly expensive, but now uh, even faster and um you know, even with like my $200 Sony mirrorless APS-C camera, uh, you can get 20 megapixel scans uh, that are, have really good color and bit depth. Um, yeah, that's what I made. How, how long does it take to scan a roll of film then? So <clears throat> it depends on your frame size, the number of frames on the roll, and whether or not they're evenly spaced. The main thing it does, and the one, the one spec that I want to push to be like the most truthful is um, a roll of 36, uh, normally sized, you know, 24 by 36 millimeter frames on 35. It'll do in a minute and 23 seconds. Um, so that's a little bit faster than four times the speed of a Paycon. Um, if the frames are evenly spaced and you can do away with edge detection, um, and it's it's not as precise alignment if they're evenly spaced and you're just going by distance advance, but it's still pretty good. Um, you can do a whole roll in 40 seconds. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, wow. I, I mean, I know you've got a model there with you, but I know it's not all plugged in. Cause honestly, cause I watched the video of this before, um, uh, and I might actually try and pull it out and sling it in here. Um, but it's the noise that it makes because I was quite stuck. Because <laughs> it, it, it does go through it and it's very cool. I really enjoy the noise. It is it makes. not a quiet machine. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was, no. That was not on my uh, design spec list. <laughs> no, but it's good. So um, we we spoke to Hamish very recently about the Pixelator. And during that conversation, we obviously talked about things like the negative supply um, film digitizer which came out last year that was last year wasn't it that came out i lose track of time um so there's been a couple of products that are already in the market that are quite different in the way they're doing things quite different in the price point for them and you're now bringing something else into this what you've already talked about what it does but what are the things that you you know that really separate it from what's out there and and what do you think is the main use case for somebody who might be listening now and thinking about investing in one of these systems or or maybe they already have something um, why would they want to look to the mongoose sure so um i want to be clear that it's not for everybody like i want to sell people things that they will really enjoy using and not just you know, sell them things that will make them hate me so i think every lab in uh every country should buy one of these, right? Um, I have a friend who runs a film lab. You may or may not know, I won't mention, but he spent uh, $15,600 last year on a Noritsu, which is lower resolution and slower than the Mongoose, right? And so, he, I mean, he'd have to buy a Mongoose. He'd have to buy, uh, 
you know, Sony mirrorless camera, Nikon, Canon, whatever. You can connect it to just about any camera. He'd have to buy, you know, a light source or, or a flash, and he'd have to, you know, align it at least once. But, you know, for a sixteenth the price, instead of putting out six or ten megapixel images, he could maybe put out 20 or 40 or 50. Um, and I think that's that's a real value to the consumer, right? People who are buying scans with their film developing. And also it, it would just save him a ton of time, right? So if he's paying somebody <clears throat> 15 or $20 an hour to run the scanner or more, um, they can do four times as many rolls of film. So I think every film lab will buy one of these. It's, it's an obvious value. Uh, he told me he would pay two grand immediately to have one. Um, that <laughs> being said, allow it. Yeah, <laughs> there. I mean, I didn't because I can't sell it yet. I can I can give them away as prototypes. I'll probably give them one, but I, I'm I'm working in batches here <laughs> as fast as I can. I haven't uh, hired an army of children with small soldering fingers, but um, I may get there. Uh, so I mean that. Okay, so every lab buys one. It's still really not enough to make the use case. Uh, it it it's not enough to make it a big enough product to make it worthwhile. And so I think there's there's some people that it's going to make sense for and some that it won't. Um, if there's anybody at home who develops, you know, film in eight, eight real tanks, you know, and is then using an Epson flatbed and scanning them at an hour a roll, like uh, in a That's day or two. It'll, yeah, it, it, this thing <laughs> will pay for itself. In, in two batches of film, right? Anybody who has long long film to scan and a quantity of it, um, you can scan uh, roll or uh, strips as short as four frames in this thing, but it's not any faster, right? If if you have like me, and and I would love to make a machine one day that that stack feeds cut film like like roll uh, strips of four right i have my grandpa's archive who was a photographer that's boxes and boxes thousands of frames of film this is not the thing right i would i would tell somebody if you were digitizing an old archive uh of you know four or five six frame strips like go buy a pixelator it's 40 bucks and it works perfectly uh no problem and this thing is not going to save you that much time over it right however um if you shoot a lot of film and you produce, you know, long rolls of 35 millimeter, be it uh, color or black and white negatives or positives, um, this thing's going to save you a lot of time. And over over like a, another high speed scanner, it'll still save you some time and allow you to make, you know, instead of like a what a, like a Noritsu will often do like a low low res scan pretty quickly and then you can go back and select which things to make high-res scans of i mean you could connect this to a uh, fuji uh for ten thousand dollars or whatever they cost and make 100 megapixel scans not that you need to but i mean um yeah it's really for people who want to scan full rolls at a time and i should also point out it'll scan down to half frame and up to uh X-pan size, which is 65 millimeters. The film gate is 27 by 68, so you can do an X-pan with a black border all around it. That is um, the, the flexibility that's in there, because I was going to ask about half-frame in particular, because scanning half frame is a, a curse um so i think yeah. and, and and it doesn't matter what device you've got if it's doing it manually 
<laughs> you're scanning half frame is just a curse um so the fact that your camera is going to be able to just uh, using frame detect just blitz through and do that boom 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 um yes. wow so so adding to anybody who has a lab and anybody who's shooting it a lot anybody who is shooting half frame should probably save themselves and and have this because i mean i know that my epson uh, it's an old epson it's a v500 but that's not uh -huh. going to detect half frame <laughs> that that will not do yeah. that for me um what was the motivation for you like personally i know we talked about the fact sure. that you seeing other people tackling the electronics certification side gave you uh, the confidence and i guess also the kind of kick up the butt you needed to make things happen but what was it that actually why did you want to make this for yourself yeah that's that's a really good question um i don't think i will get to answer that on any other podcasts except maybe my own for <laughs> all three people that listen um so i don't know if, if you're following it i i think i've posted a couple of things um, about six months ago, we got quarantined here in New Mexico, and um, I became aware of a lot of open source projects building ventilators uh, on the yes. internet. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> what do ventilators have to do with uh, industrial mechatronics and film scanners? Uh, well, so I, you know, I just I felt really like, man, I should not be building cameras right now right i still filled orders and i but i wasn't my heart was not in designing new cameras when you know i mean like almost two hundred thousand people have died in the u.s alone at this point not that i'm like some big altruist but i i felt like okay you know this is one of those events in the world you you'd like to do something nice and so i joined some of these slack channels and reddit whatevers and um you know, everybody wanted to build actually like Arduino solutions, um, which is what I do kind of all day when I'm not making cameras. But I thought like the issue was not that um, not that people haven't designed good ventilators. It was that uh, people have designed ventilators that you couldn't get parts for. Right. It wasn't like GE couldn't scale up production of ventilators. It's that they couldn't get the electronic precursor components that are necessary to build an electronic ventilator. Right. And at that time, you know, I, I celebrate this uh, holiday called Chinese Hanukkah. Maybe I've told you about it where you uh, are building something uh, out of electronics and you order some stuff on AliExpress and then you forget about it. And then like 50, <laughs> 60 days later, you start getting packages of microcontrollers and switches and LEDs in the mail. Um, Chinese Hanukkah at that point was operating on about 120 days. And so I knew you could not build a ventilator quickly uh, out of, you know, Arduino type parts uh, just because you couldn't get them, not at scale. And so I thought we needed, what we needed was a ventilator that was powered like a grandfather clock with a swinging uh, jug of milk or something. Um, and, you know, all of the American engineers in these groups laughed at me as well they should. Um, but I, I thought, okay, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a couple of weeks designing components that are purely mechanical that can be 3d printed in a pinch and maybe those will be used in medical equipment in a real desperate situation or they'll just be used as prototyping components for other groups that don't want to wait so like the first thing i made was a check valve which is a one-way valve you'll find it in all sorts of plumbing in your house as your uh water heater as a couple and 
you know, you can buy these at $3 from Home Depot or McMaster Car is a industrial parts supplier here. And so I, I 3D printed a check valve and I just put that uh, on the internet. I swear I'm going to get back to film scanners. Uh, <laughs> I put that uh, on the internet for free uh, just so you could download it and use it. And the thought was like, okay, if you're prototyping like, and you're trying to do it fast, like a lot of thousands of people were at the time, you could wait three days for McMaster car to deliver your parts, or you could print one now and then wait and swap it out for a McMaster part. Anyway, I, I got uh, to building um, peep valve, which are, which are like uh, pressure release valves. It's called a positive end expiratory pressure valve. And then I made a bunch of diversion valves and different sort of uh, pressure controlled logic rather than digitally controlled logic valves. And I almost gave up on this. Like I was making YouTube videos. I got 12,000 YouTube video uh, views on one peep valve video that like, I, yeah, I have maybe a hundred YouTube subscribers. I'm not, you know, famous in that way. And, but nobody was actually picking them up. Anyway, this group from Brazil and Argentina sent me a message one night and was like, Hey, we're building a ventilator and we're using all your parts. Would you come see us? Anyway, I got involved in that. And then like every morning for a couple of months, I would get on a zoom call with a bunch of engineers around the world. There were a couple of people in Sao Paulo, uh, a couple in Buenos Aires. Uh, there was one guy in Mumbai. There was one guy in the Netherlands. Like, it was really kind of like this really interesting global effort trying to build a free ventilator out of, uh, you know, basically car parts. Like, we, they were the only ones, right? Like, no other American was in the group because we think you can just get everything on Amazon. Uh, but people in Brazil and Argentina understood that if, if you put a part in an open source plan, people better be able to pull it out of a junkyard in Chile. And so we built this ventilator that went on for two months. I finished my uh, videos and documentation. It's all on GitHub. You can find it at openventilator.io. There's a lot of people working on it, uh, even still. But anyway, okay, the long, long, stupid story that has nothing to do with the, what you know the listeners of this podcast want to hear me talk about. It was a good about, story. If, if anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I made some YouTube videos about it, whatever. Uh, so I finished this and for those months, like I thought about quitting the homemade camera podcast. I thought about quitting making cameras. My heart just like was not in it. You know, I, I felt like, um, I felt really bad. Like I was, uh, bringing Nick and Graham down and just felt terrible for a while. And, uh, you know, I finished the ventilator and I called him. He's always been like very, uh, good to me and, and generous with his time. And he, uh, he was like, yeah, let's, let's talk. What are, what are you going to do next? And I said, I really don't know. Uh, I have all of these projects that I could start. I just spent, you know, two months working 15 hour days and making no money. And I really need to either make a product that's going to make people excited and sell a lot or, you know, do something that I, I think will, you know, be beneficial somehow. And so I, I read to him out of my dream camera journal, maybe 15 of the 50 ideas that were in there. And then, uh, one of them was this automated negative carrier, which I thought was one of the simpler projects. I uh, and he was like, "Yeah, that one. You got to make that one." And so I said, "Okay, give me two weeks." And so in two weeks, I had a working prototype. Uh, and then for the last five months, I have been one week away from being able to release this thing. <laughs> and so that's that's kind of how it it came about. It was really M who pushed me to make this thing. And uh, you know, I've had conversations with a lot of other people uh, in the industry who you 
probably know about how to release it and what to make it do and uh, features on it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been, I've just, yeah, I just finally cut my hair to do a Kickstarter video the other day, but <laughs> I was looking super duper homeless. I spent the last five months basically just living in my shop, uh, sun up to sundown and plus some, um, could have could have showered more probably, uh, but yeah, made this thing. There's it's no pretty time cool for showering when you're in the zone, though, is there? You just got to yeah. Keep pushing. Well, talk to my girlfriend; she feels differently. But <laughs> she don't know what it's like. <laughs> Listen, when when you choose to live with a mad scientist, you get you get what you get. You don't get upset. I think yeah. that's fairly safe to say. Um, I'm going to put her on the horn with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. I, I, that that would end badly for both of us, I suspect. Um, well, let's talk about the mongoose in more detail. Uh, the would you describe it for us describe how it works what it's built of what can people expect the um we'll talk about the kickstarter a bit later on because you're going to kickstart this but um for people who currently won't be able to see anything other than the little video that's there describe it for us so i mean ultimately what i want your listeners to do is go watch the kickstarter video and if they're really interested watch the video setup and the user manuals which will show like every little detail of this and explain everything very dryly but i will do my best uh now to explain it um you know without pictures but so it's um it's a very dense black box uh, of kind of a funny shape. I think it looks a little bit to me like the original Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, which I dig. Um, and that's the scan module. And then actually this was an invention of M and uh, necessity is the control box is separate from the scanner. Um, and I was originally going to build this all into one box, but what uh, M said to me is like, one, it'll make the modules cheaper. And two, a lot of people already have scanning setups, be it, you know, a tripod and a vertical light box, light panel, or, um, you know, an overhead camera stand, uh, like a copy stand. Um, so he really wanted me to make the scanner uh, module as minimal as possible. Um, it was very nice 3D printed. I have some machines that are just printing this print over and over. Um, it weighs... The module weighs maybe a pound and a half, so 750 grams for uh, those of you English people who are on the metric system. <laughs> um, and it just has uh, two openings uh, along either side to insert and eject film. And then it has one RJ45 port, which is a, like an Ethernet port, which it does not connect to the Ethernet. It just uses Ethernet cabling uh, to connect. Uh, power and, and communicate with the control box. And then the control box is, I don't know, maybe don't quote me on this, but like seven by four by two inches, something like that. And it's a big, uh, acrylic black acrylic box. It's a shiny. It has an led screen. It has four buttons and then a knob, which also functions as a button. And then on the side of it, it has a power port, a port to plug in any cable release just about, and then a couple of uh, RJ45 connections, again, to connect to the scanner module or maybe some other modules in the future, and it has one uh, power switch. So that's what it looks like. Um, what it does, so it'll come with a power cord, a uh, sync cord for a camera of your choice uh, within reason. Um, I'm even going to make some 
custom cords for people who will measure the connectivity in their Hasselblads or whatever for me. I think I would like to add that to the, the list of possible options. Um, and then it will come with a uh, Ethernet cord that connects the control box to the scan module. Um, the Let's see, what can I tell you about it? Um, the scanner, we already talked about frame size. It's got um, a bi-level uh, film path with two S-curves in it. So basically, like film works like a slap bracelet for those of your listeners who are 90s children, uh, both of us. And uh, they... So film can cup, right, where it's uh, laid out straight and it curls, you know, the sprockets in towards themselves, or it can curl uh, where it rolls up much like in a film can or, or something like that. And so uh, you don't you want the film to be totally flat as it passes through the film gate so you can get as uh, you know faithful a reproduction with your camera as possible. And so um, film can't both cup and curl at the same time. Right. It's it's always flat in one direction. And so by making the film go up a hump over and then down a hump, um, it's necessarily flat through the film gate. And that's not my own invention. I think a lot of products like this will use that uh, strategy. And uh, a lot of cameras actually use that strategy within their film gates. Um, it's like a RB67 back does that as well. And so um, it ensures that your film is flat. Um, it also only touches the film uh, on the rails, so it can't possibly scratch your film, except like you wouldn't want to put a sprocket rocket image through this. Use a pixelator for that, uh, because one, you can't capture the outside of the sprockets, which you've exposed on a sprocket rocket or some you know, weirdo cam like that, uh, an adaption uh, from a Pentax 6.7 type of deal uh, without a mask. Um, and... Yeah, so I mean, it can scratch the outside of the uh, outside of the sprockets in terms of emulsion, but but it can't touch any of the uh, image area. Um, okay, so let's get to the control box. Uh, when you turn this thing on, it has uh, three scan modes and then you know seven or eight settings modes. Um, the scan modes are manual mode, which uh, allows you to use the knob to advance or retract the film. And if you push the knob in, it changes the speed. So you can move it very slowly for precise alignment or very quickly to jog, you know, 10 frames down the line or something like that. And then uh, really only one button is active, the red button. And when you press it, it will trigger your camera. And so in that way, you could use it just like a standard negative carrier. Like if you were using a enlarger carrier, like a Bessler Negatrans and a uh, cable release to scroll your film and take a picture. Um, that's not why I built this thing, but I figured it should have a manual mode. Um, it also has an automatic mode where um, you uh, insert your film and then you just press go. It'll scan two frames really slowly, uh, determine the densitometry of the base of your film, rewind those frames, and then it will scroll looking for the edge of a frame, find that edge, align your frame in the middle of the film gate or where you want it aligned in the film gate, probably not the middle, um, fire the camera and repeat. Uh, and in that way, it'll do uh, an entire roll of 36 uh, slides, color negatives, black and white negatives um, in um, under a minute and a half. Um, and then it has one more mode, which is 
uh, fast mode. Um, fast mode does, oh, so I should say automatic mode will work obviously with um, evenly spaced film or unevenly spaced film. So if you have like a Zorky 4 from, you know, the 60s has been banged around a, a bunch and it doesn't always space the frames evenly, it doesn't matter because this thing will detect the edges of a frame and align based on the frame itself rather than just some set distance. Um, but I also thought, you know, there might be some cases where, uh, you know, you have a picture of a person on a totally black backdrop with no detail whatsoever, and there is no frame edge. And so at least, I mean, you can always use a manual mode to do that, but um, if they're evenly spaced, you can set it into fast mode and it will uh, just advance a set distance. So you measure uh, the distance between a couple of frames, it averages and figures out the distance on you know, one frame, and then it will advance, take a picture, advance, take a picture, um, without checking for edges. And in that way, you know, there's a little bit more drift and you can't be as tight in, uh, you might have to do a little bit of cropping because the, the frames are not as precisely aligned as through edge detection, but in that way, it'll do a whole roll of 36 and 40 seconds, uh, which is pretty nutty. Um, and yeah, it'll scan really undense negatives, uh, really like thin negatives or underexposed, underdeveloped, uh, until there's basically no edge to the thing. So there's, in one of the settings modes, you can set the edge detect sensitivity for automatic mode, um, and it will find thin negatives. Um, the only things it has problems with is when there's no edge, or if you have a whole roll of images of a black wrought iron fence that are super high contrast where there's no detail in the fence and the fence posts are perfectly vertical <laughs> and they go from the top to the bottom of the frame. Right. So in that case, you might have to go back and manually scan those couple of frames, oh, but you know, I'm for, out, for, that, uh, that's my entire portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> right. For that guy, you know, I want to be clear, like it has its limitations. So does the Paycon, right? They all do some sort of edge detection at the professional level. Um, but, but pretty much you can set the edge detection sensitivity. So if it's uh, missing frames, you can uh, turn the sensitivity up. If it's triggering accidentally in the middle of a frame, you can turn the sensitivity down. And basically, like it goes from one to 100 in the, the settings. There's some algorithm inside of the program that turns that into actual uh, sensitivities in, in the sensors. But um, basically, I have set my uh, scanner to 50%. Uh, on that sensitivity setting and scanned like all but one roll out of 100 and 110 rolls have scanned perfectly like that. It's it's pretty robust. I'm, I'm actually surprised at how uh, reliable it was. Um, and I'm mostly surprised at the speed, uh, which is like, uh, I, you know, I want to take credit for how fast it is. But actually what I wanted to do was automate the process so I could go away, make a cup of tea, eat a sandwich and come back. Um, and which a lot of people were like, great, you know, I can automate this and go do something else. But, uh, when you're scanning a roll of film at a minute and a half, like it, it just wound up working way faster. It's extremely noisy and kind of unpleasant to listen to, but that's something people will deal with. Um, but it's, it's just so fast. You can't walk away. You just load the next roll of film. That being said, you know, in 15 minutes or less, you can, you can do eight, nine, 10 rolls of film and, and be done with it. What happens to the roll when it does it pop out the other side and just curl yeah. on itself? Exactly. And so 
a lot of people have asked uh, if uh, it's going to come with a tray. And I did not include a tray uh, for a couple of reasons. So one, a tray is pretty low value and pretty expensive to 3D print. Uh, you could injection mold it pretty quickly, but I don't have an injection molder, nor do I want to spend 50 grand in tooling. Um, the other reason is that some people will use this on a light box vertically, right, with a copy stand. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and some people will use it horizontally with like a tripod and a light panel. And so depending upon the orientation, you might want a different type of tray. And so right now, uh, I didn't do it in the Kickstarter video for cleanliness, and I was just using a dummy roll of film, but um, I just use a red plastic Dixie plate to keep the film off the table. Um, or if your light box is clean, it can lay on the light box if you're scanning in a vertical orientation. Um, and then, you know, I don't, I don't want to blow up anybody's spot on other products, but there are some other companies that I really dig that will be releasing things like light sources for scanning. Um, and I would like to make like a mount adapter that would take this thing and mount it to some specific light boxes. And I'll probably sell those and give away the files so that people can 3d print, you know, an adapter to then use a product that I'm selling and that, that, um, you know, somebody else is selling. And in that case, I might also make some, uh, 3d printable or laser cuttable, uh, film trays that sort of bolt to the whole unit. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, as you said, this, well, I, can't, I was, we don't want to blow up anybody's spot. I can't remember. Did he mention it when he was on the show a few weeks ago? Yeah, um, we did, yeah. Oh, you. All right. So, so yeah, good. That's right. I can't remember. It was like three weeks ago. I know I, we I talked about it. I can't remember if he's public about it yet. But, well, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's Hamish. Um, yeah, working on a... Okay. Uh, okay, you blew up his spot. I did. He blew but, up yeah. his own spot. That's fine. It's okay. fine. Um, so, yeah, that'd be really cool. I mean, uh, because as we talked about when Hamish was on the show, I don't currently have a even remotely good light source for digitizing negatives um john you've got a light source haven't you but it's something fairly cheap and cheerful from amazon is that right yeah that's right i just bought one of those like 15 quidder jobbies which seems to be working okay with the pixelator um there yeah. yeah so i i had a conversation about this with hamish and he was like uh are you interested in in making a light source and i said no you can buy them so cheap i can't compete like and there's a million of them out there um but uh, hamish is is working on some cool stuff and also like i love that he has uh the film gate uh open source project around the pixelator and so I was thinking about making him some film gates and just tossing them on the internet for free just as a goodwill thing. But even better would be to make a mount between, uh, you know, the, the mongoose and the pixelator light source. Um, because really like for scanning black and whites, it doesn't really matter. But once you start doing color negatives or, uh, slides, having like a good, uh, continuous spectrum light source, that's color balanced is really excellent. In fact, I scan, uh, I didn't do this in the video because it's hard to see if you're just using an intermittent light, but I use a Speedatron 2400 watt second head on a giant power pack. And that thing is daylight balanced for uh, color when I'm scanning. Um, it's also a little bit slower because you got to wait for the thing to recycle. But um, yeah, I think it would be really fun to uh, release a bunch of uh 
sort of mount adapters for Hamish's light source and maybe some trays with that that people can print and maybe I'll sell in the future. What's a, just a quick question related to that. If you're if the mongoose is triggering the camera, if mm-hmm. the camera doesn't fire its shutter, maybe it's buffering or waiting for a flash or something like that. Does the mongoose know that the shutter hasn't fired yet? Ooh, good engineer. <clears throat> so I, I really love that question, and it predicts something that I don't usually bother talking about and has to do with the seven settings modes uh, that are not like good you know, sales details, but uh, exactly. So um, the mongoose has two settings modes. One is the trigger interval, and one is the frame delay, and they both... Uh, they both affect what what you're talking about. So the trigger interval is uh, different cameras require a different pulse duration to trigger one frame. So uh, basically the operation of the scanner, and this is in the manual, is in automatic mode, let's say. It scrolls the film looking for an edge. It finds the edge. It aligns that film into the gate under your camera lens. At that point, it triggers the camera um, with a pulse, right, by by contacting some points on the, the cable release. And then it will wait before doing anything else for the camera to complete its exposure. And those are two manually settable things. Um, and so, like, you only really set them, well, you set the trigger interval once every time you change the camera to a new camera or buy the thing. And then you set the, the frame delay you know, every time you change your light source or lens or, you know, overall setup, but those are stored to internal memory and you should only have to do them once every time you, you know, come up with a new setup. But so the, the pulse is, you know, if it's too long, you'll make the camera take multiple pictures. If it's too short, like, you know, a nanosecond, it's not going to trigger the camera. And so basically what you want is the shortest pulse delay or the, the four, uh, I'm sorry, the shortest pulse time or trigger pulse time that will make the camera fire that won't spend any extra time delaying the scanner. And this is like a lot of technical jargon, but basically what you do is you uh, turn the, you plug the camera in, you turn the thing on, you set it to the trigger interval setting, and then you turn the knob down until the camera doesn't fire. You turn it up one click, you press the fire button. If it fires, good. If it doesn't, you turn the knob up one click. And then once you're done, you push the knob again and it saves the settings, makes a beep, and uh, and you're good. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple to calibrate, but it's it's important to get like the most speed out of your uh, out of your scanner. The other thing is the uh, frame delay. That uh, comes after the camera has been triggered, right? And that accounts for a couple of things, which is the sum of one, uh, any shutter lag you might have, which is not really a thing these days. But, you know, if you wanted to connect this to a Sony Mavica, uh, you got to wait two seconds for the camera to take a picture after you push the button. Um, mm-hmm. Two is the exposure time. Uh, so if you're shooting at 125th of a second, right, that's uh, like something around uh, 100 milliseconds. Um, Or if you're shooting faster, it's less, you know. Uh, And then the third thing is, if you're using a flash like I am, the flash recycle time, uh, you don't want to take another picture until 
the flash is recycled, right? Mm -hmm. And so the sum of those three things, if applicable, uh, you can set to a frame delay. And so right now, like in that video that was really fast, I'm actually waiting for 450 milliseconds, so like almost a half a second per frame. I'm just waiting for the camera to take its picture. Yeah, uh, I think I could get it down under a minute if I could take, you know, if I was using a strobe that recycled really quickly that was very bright and I opened the thing up. But, you know, a minute and a half is like reasonable to give the thing half a second to um, take a take a picture. Yeah, I, I could make it a little bit faster, certainly with the settings that I'm using it on. But I think you know, if you have a dim light box and a dim lens, you might want to uh, increase that setting so it'll wait a little bit longer. It, it can wait as long as like two or three seconds between frames if you're, you know, using some really crazy strobe or whatever. Um, yes, I'm glad you asked that. No, that's, that's good. To the basic, like, I suppose you could run into problems if you weren't able to calibrate it for those setups. And most people probably yes. won't have those issues, but there'll be certain cases where actually it just wouldn't work if you didn't have the ability to calibrate for them. Yes, so absolutely. Right. And and so I don't know if you guys know Jeff Perry of 20th Century Cameras. He is a friend of mine, and uh, one of my favorite cranky old men who make cool things on the Internet. And uh, he and I had a bunch of discussions about this. And like he's always trying to design things that are dead simple and have as little control as possible so that people can open the box, push a button and it works. And I love that design philosophy, but that's just not me. Right. I I. I am going to have a 10 minute uh, setup manual. Like, so the things you can adjust in this thing is uh, the trigger interval. You can adjust the frame delay, how long it waits after taking a frame. You can adjust the sensitivity of the edge detection. Uh, you can calibrate the distance that uh, the fast mode scrolls the film per frame. You can change the number of frames to be measured for more or less accurate uh, uh measurement of that distance in fast mode. You can change um, whether it's scanning negatives or positives. That's unfortunately a manual setting, but it takes a second. Uh, you can turn the sound on and off, and you can change the sensitivity of the automatic uh, edge detection routine. I think that's, oh, and you can change the alignment of each frame during automatic scan. So you can align it with your camera or align your camera to it. So I, you know, it's, it's not, um, you don't just plug it in and, uh, press a button and it goes right. It'll take a little bit of setup time, but all of the settings really store to internal memory are, and are read every time the thing is booted. So really like once you set it up, unless you change something drastic, you don't need to go back and do that. And I don't know, it's just the way I like to design things is I, I feel like people scanning things with their camera don't want necessarily the easiest, but they want uh, something that is reasonably easy and very good. <laughs> is there any limit to what cameras this will work with or won't work with? <clears throat> um, yeah, so right now I have tested it on Nikon, Canon, and Sony, uh, sort of modern things. If it does not have a cable release, like a 
digital cable release, probably it won't work. Although I've been talking to somebody who really wants me to make an IR uh, spoofer so it can trigger a Nikon that only uses an infrared dongle. There's some open source things about that. Um, I have on the way some Panasonic and uh, Fuji cables and cable releases. I'm going to figure out how those work. Um, I guarantee by the end of the Kickstarter, those will be options, maybe even before the Kickstarter. We'll see when they get here, but I just need to figure out which which wires connect to which in the cable release so I can sell them. And each one, you know, the buyer will just specify whichever uh, camera they want to use it with, and then I will include, you know, one cable release if they want to buy more. I, I don't really want to get into selling them. I'll probably just post a link on Amazon for the ones that I don't have to special make. Um, and then, so Nikon, Canon, Sony are already here. Fuji, Panasonic will be tested in the next couple of weeks, and I, I'm sure they will work. Um, and then somebody asked about a medium format Hasselblad. We looked at the cable. It looks like just a standard contact with a mini plug. Um, so it might just be like a $3 cable on Amazon. And if not, he's going to measure some things for me and I will make one and, you know, sell them for 10 or 15 bucks or just include them with the scanner. Um, the design, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that the film is carried along and through on rail so that only the edge is being touched is obviously going to minimize it any opportunity for it to pick up dust along the way is there any actual dust removal within the system or is that not something you've gone down the route of owing to the risk of scratching film if it's not quite perfect yeah so um i am not include for for the film scratching reason i am not selling micro uh, abrasion cloths or uh, microfiber cloth i'm not selling static brushes i'm i i don't want to I don't want my product to touch your film, right? I want it to be completely, you know, logically impossible to scratch somebody's film. However, I think um, people do sell uh, anti-static brushes and cloths that you could easily, you know, mount um, either on a tray or in front of the scanner if you wanted it to be, you know, dusted as it goes through. Um, the other sort of benefit of this thing over, let's say, a Paycon or a Frontier or a, a Naritsu, some some sort of industrial lab or even a home scanner like <laughs> um i don't know if you've ever used like a nikon cool scan that'll do a full roll of film uh, it has digital ice to take out all of the dust that inherently gets trapped in that scanner and so you know this device is pretty simple and i built it with you know it's all screwed together and you're not supposed to disassemble it void the warranty uh but there is one door that you can just slide out here you know, it doesn't uh, bolt in or anything. And then you can see the cog wheels that advance the film and the spindle. And you can really just use some canned air or rocket duster and blow this thing out in a couple of seconds. And so you make sure that the scanner isn't dusty, your scans aren't dusty, the film isn't dusty. I, I made it like purposefully uh, extremely easy to clean. Do you, have to have a, do you have to have a leader on the film for it to reach the... Uh, the Good question. John, are you an engineer? <laughs> These are really like exactly the questions that uh, that were biggest, right? So um, you do not have to have a leader, but if you want to automatically scan the first couple of frames, you do have to have a leader, right? So um, unfortunately, I, I made some design trade-offs in this thing, which is that I put the edge detection sensors on the opposite side as the um, as the cog wheel. And mm -hmm. so, um, you up, you know, a frame and a half, two frames 
to feed this thing into the scanner. And the reason why I did that is because um, pulling the film through the sensors always keeps the film flat. It never kinks or ruins your emulsion, right? It's, it doesn't require uh, as much serendipity to do its mechanical job perfectly. Whereas if you push the film, you can jam it and kink it, uh, ruin mm -hmm. a frame or two, um, or often you create sort of like ripple waves in the film that are not going to scan correctly. And so I decided to put the detectors on one side and pull the film through them. Uh, but, you know, it takes say 68 like maybe two a little bit more than two frames to engage with the sprocket wheel so if you have a leader it will automatically scan the first frame um, if you don't have a leader you may manually scan you know the first two frames and uh, then automatically scan the rest and i think that's you know it was a trade-off of having such a big film gate that will allow you to do panoramics and uh, pulling the film rather than pushing it um, or, you know, I could have made it much more expensive and had two motors and two controllers and one motor fed in and the other picked it up. But I just really wanted to keep it as simple as possible. And so, again, this is really designed for, um, you pull your film out of the tank, don't cut the leader. In fact, just trim the edge of the leader so it's nice and smooth. It'll, it'll take, you know, a couple of broken sprockets here and there and still transport without damaging anything. But, um, it really loves to be fed film that has like a nice curve and not a broken sprocket on the, on the beginning edge. And so keeping the leader on before you scan is, is a nice thing to do. Speeds things up. Okay, cool. Um, let's talk about the Kickstarter because we mentioned it briefly. This is how you've, uh, brought uh you brought your first camera to market the um just the well it's just called the camera dactyl wasn't it your first camera um you did the kickstarter most recently for the files for the brand Capan. so that was quite an unusual kickstarter because you weren't selling or you weren't kickstarting for people to get hold of the product as such with that. Well, you were, but you weren't. What you were kickstarting right. was essentially, as you <laughs> put it, you were holding the digital files to ransom. So you were basically yeah. saying, look, if you, I put a lot of time and effort into creating this, I want to make it a fairly open sourcing. So if I can raise enough money on Kickstarter, I will release these files into the wild for free and then anyone can benefit from it, which... It was quite a risky move, I think, because essentially you're asking people to pay for something, uh, which that I'm telling them will be free in yeah. a few months, yeah. which is now free. Yeah, but you know, I mean, there was a lot of altruism. A bunch of people gave me more than a hundred bucks, and like 650 people gave me a dollar. I probably should have made it, you know, ten dollars. I think those people would all have given me ten dollars for the most part. But okay, you live and you learn. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that is. It proved to me that people are willing to pay for files and are willing to sort of altruistically pool their money and get them a little bit earlier and then give them to the world, right? It's not a gift from me to the world. It's a gift from those 850 Kickstarter backers or whatever. Um, you like but, yeah, radio I mean, this, head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm an extremely unpopular, uh, equally bald radio head. <laughs> <laughs> there are definitely similarities there. Um, unsurprisingly, given the complexity of what this product is, um, you're not doing that this time. You couldn't do that this time because people can't 
make what you're selling you just, not unless yeah. they have all the wherewithals and technical expertise that you do it's not a thing that somebody can knock up at home no matter how many 3d printers they have instantly how many 3d printers do you currently have um i just got rid of four and i have one new one in a box and four five on the way so you know by this time next week i'll be back up to 15 um but <laughs> You know, if if this thing goes well, I will have thirty, thirty-five. Oh my god! Just making the same thing. <laughs> I don't think your showering is the only thing your partner's going to be having issues with. <laughs> well, I have a shop now, right? When I started this, I had my my workshop was split between three rooms in our house and the garage. Now I just have a three-car garage. It's like eight hundred square feet of my my machines. <laughs> it's a little bit nicer. Yeah. She doesn't have to look at it. Or listen to it, I would imagine. Or smell it. Yeah. All of smell which, it. I'm sure it's quite a uh, sensory experience. Uh, it's quite lovely. <laughs> I don't believe you, Ethan. I yeah. don't believe you at all. <laughs> so, the Kickstarter. So, as people listen to this on the Thursday, if you're not listening to this on the Thursday, what are you doing? Look at you know the right. rules. We put it out. We expect everybody to listen within the first half an hour of its release, regardless of what time it comes out in your country, <laughs> which tends to be about half past one in the morning in the UK. Anyway, um, as this goes out on Thursday, you are planning that your Kickstarter will launch on Tuesday, which is Tuesday the 15th? 15th, okay. Um, uh, what day is today? Yeah, it's the 15th. Yeah, Next Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday the 15th. And what time are you planning on launching? Because this is important because this is going to be have financial implications. Isn't so, it? I mean, part of this is, uh, you know, this thing has been medium ready. There's still like a few weeks i've sent it out to reviewers slash beta testers um last week and they'll start getting them next week i didn't want anybody to have a review without people being able to like go click and buy the thing so um part of this has to do with me getting my act together and editing this kickstarter video and making some manuals and being approved by kickstarter but i'm shooting for uh tuesday the Tuesday the 15th, 8 a.m. Eastern or Central. Something like that. That's what, that's what the internet tells me is an awesome time to launch your Kickstarter project. Realize your dreams, bro. <laughs> so I guess that's probably mid-afternoon in proper time, I would guess, somewhere around there. Uh, we can look it up afterwards. But, um, so I suppose this is as good a time as any to come on to how the pricing is going to work on the Kickstarter because hopefully what's come through as we've talked about this is that um this is not a bare bones product and even though it's being made by ethan by his five million 3d printed cameras and uh, 3d printers rather and um but there's a lot of tech and in innovation and uh, ingenuity gone into these this is not going to be a pixelator price product yeah it's it's kind of expensive it uses a lot of you know like okay so i print the housings and i laser cut the the boxes and i laser cut some of the gears but you know um all of all of the components like close to 100 components for the the control box and the module uh you know those are bought off the shelf and i have to solder them together and program them so it's you know uh if I sold them for what I think I could sell a million for, I would lose something like $20 million. But, <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I think still some people are going to pay me the eight to $10 million a unit that I'm asking. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go retire to Barbados and live on a beach. Sounds nice. <laughs> no. I, um, yeah. So they are expensive and I think there's a limited use case, but for those people who have that use case, I think they'll pay for themselves really quick. I think, you know, certainly any lab that's out there is going to pay for the mongoose six times over on the first day they use them. Um, but yeah, so I'm not hundred percent sure. Don't quote me on this. This might change by the time the Kickstarter is launched. I want to run the numbers a third time to make sure that I'm not going to lose money on any units and that I'll be able to test it with, you know, the sale of, I don't know, 50 to hundred units, something like that. But, um, I'm going to start it out around wholesale prices. Uh, one of the things is I don't ever want to retail this because to be able to sell them, I need to buy the components, you know, in bulk, right? I can't just buy one RJ45 connector from Amazon. I have to buy like a thousand of them from China and wait for them. Um, and so I can't really afford to, in terms of space or money, sit on, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of electronics parts, right? There's like a hundred discrete components in each control box and scanner. So, um, <laughs> I love I the fact, Ethan, it's so obvious which part of this business you don't enjoy doing. And it's talking about the money side of it. Um, yeah, so on behalf yeah, of yeah. all the listeners, okay, I'm going get to say, there. get to the point, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> you should have said that a long time ago. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try and, only wholesale them to retailers in the future, but I'm going to start them out at like 450 bucks about, and that's us, which works out right now to like 340 something pounds or 350 euros, which I think is pretty good. Although that won't include shipping and VAT and whatever you got to deal with in your country. So that might not be that good. It'll come with a control box, a power supply and a uh, connector cable and a cable for your designated camera. Um, but, but here's the catch is I'm going to move them up in price as time goes on towards what I think eventually a retailer will sell them for. So I'm going to hopefully sell them to a distributor who's then going to sell them to a retailer who's then going to sell them to other people. And each time they're going to make at least 15% if, if not, you know, 30 or 40. And so I don't think I'm going to be able to sell them this cheap. So buy now. No. So, um, I'm going to start the Kickstarter. Let's say do the first group of around 450 bucks, um, for 25 units that I'll ship. I want to say December at the latest by like January. It still has to do with Chinese shipping times and, uh, some FCC testing and CE testing for Europe. And then I'll do the next batch of 25 for $475 and those will ship a month later. And then I'll do a batch for, you know, uh, 500 and 525 and that batch will ship one month after that and then i'll do a batch for you know 525 and so on and so forth in 25 dollar increments uh in batches of about 25 um and then they'll all ship you know uh eventually i'll start shipping batches of like 25 in a month and then i'll move to batches of 50 in a month when i have everything you know kind of humming along um and they'll get more expensive by 25 dollars until they reach probably what i think people will retail them for which is around $650 which you know I know is a ton of money um but yeah I mean I can't I I wish I could sell them for 100 bucks but uh just there's there's I would if I could make them in 0 seconds I would lose a lot of money at 100 bucks 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sell uh, $10 million and then I'm going to retire and then you're never going to see anything else from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it works with Kickstarter. As we discussed with Hamish, everybody makes huge amounts of money and just goes and lives yeah. on a boat somewhere really lovely. That's always how it works. Um, well, I'm still here. I've run two successful Kickstarters in the last two years. It's, it's, you know, I mean, I'm not wildly wealthy, but I'm the proud owner of at least 15 printers, some of which are in the mail. Uh, <laughs> I think that might be so, why you're not wildly wealthy. <laughs> yeah, no, but I am in that I get to do stuff like this uh, all the time, right? I get to build things that I'm interested in. I get to play with cameras. I get to talk to people who are also passionate about this thing on the internet. And so in some ways I am way more wealthy than if I just built brewery equipment all day, all night. Uh, yeah. So in terms of where you're at in readiness, well, you said it just a second ago, you've got units that you have sent out to people to beta test, but also review. So you have got as pretty much the, the finished product ready to go. Yeah, I mean, it'll get a few tweaks, and I'm sure... So there's three very minor uh, mechanical changes that I have on my desk, and there's um, right now the... I have I have to change a greater than to a less than sign in 7,500 lines of code to make it uh, stop detect. Oh, so when the roll runs out, it will detect that there's no more film and stop. Uh, but that doesn't work while scanning positives right now because I need to change uh, greater than to a less than in the code, and that's like a known issue. There's a couple like little tweaks like that. I want to put some delays in the button so you don't have to quickly press a button uh, just to make it a little bit smoother. But, you know, if I shipped this as is now, I think people would be super happy with it. I think, you know, I've got a month and a half before even testing them at least for uh, compliance. And, um, you know, so far only I have used it. I have seven in the mail and I'm going to ship an eighth when I'm done filming it on, uh, on maybe thursday um but yeah i mean i think there'll be a couple of minor tweaks or just suggestions that people have that i say oh that's a good idea i should put this menu item here instead of there or you know make these buttons trigger instead of that button but um yeah i'll get some feedback from them i will make minor changes all of the changes i i i guarantee it is at least as good as it is today right all of those changes will um make it better uh but you know functionally it's 99% the same and uh, it will look exactly the same as this. this is how I'm going to manufacture them. Yeah. How yeah. long does um, how long does compliance take? Good question. It depends how many problems I run into. Um, so one of the things that will absolutely change is the power adapter. I, <laughs> I had a lot of dead power adapters that came from Amazon and so I shipped all seven uh, all seven units with a different power adapter. And then some people may change them or use adapters because only three of them went to the U S. Um, and I don't know what people have in their own country, but I, one will ship with power adapters that you might need a plug adapter, but they'll all be like 240 volt compliant so that you know, no matter where you are in the world, you can just plug this thing in. You might need a, you know, $2 plug adapter for your country. Um, but yeah, so, one of the things, the big question is the most, now we're getting into like uh, electronic engineering, which everybody's going to hate me for, but the most uh, 
the most common reason for a piece of electronics to fail like this is because of the power adapter. You know, it's just like a little, they call them a wall wart. You know, you plug it in and it's got a cable out that brings nine volts to the device. Um, those things are often electronically noisy, not, not noise you can hear, but noise you can sense uh, with some equipment. Anyway, um, basically, I'm going to buy uh, 15 of those in ascending order and start with the least expensive so long as it's reliable and when that fails i will have them switch to the next most ex or next least expensive power adapter and go through until we find one that is quiet enough to meet both fcc and ce uh requirements and so yeah that was a long way of saying i don't know how long it will take but I'm going to go either to Colorado or Arizona with my van and a soldering setup and a couple grand worth of different tiny three cent components that, you know, if anything needs to be changed, I will change it. So I think it should take maybe a week or two, depending upon when I can get a slot in a multimillion dollar electrically anechoic chamber. Um, but, you know, the test should only take a day. There's not that many functions on the machine. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you the Hamish question, which I think is what I'm going to refer to this as now. Um, because despite the fact that you've said, and I think you're, you're definitely right to a point, that this is not for everyone. Um, it is not an inexpensive product. It's not ridiculously expensive. I mean, compared to how much you'd have to pay to get a Naritsu or, as you said, a Pack-On, which is going to automatically feed film through and detect it and take it. Compared to those things... It's really cheap, um, but it's not those things. Um, right. It's better than those things. It's better than but, those things, exactly. But, 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 but only labs have those things, really. Right? Yeah, and and so and I think I think it's going to be a no-brainer for labs. But really, who I'm competing against is my friend Hamish. Yeah, right? and he's nobody's and, friend. You, you have been. anyway. <laughs> listen, let me get to the point I was making before you okay. wander off again. The point is that um, <laughs> uh, like, I love the Pixelator. I think it's great. But as I mentioned when Hamish was on, I, I really want to get one to to digitize my four by five. But if I've got a lot of thirty five mil. Um, the idea of getting something that's going to do that automatically for me is actually quite appealing. And I have my flatbed scanner. That's okay for me with 35mm. Um, but if you don't have a scanning setup and you are lazy or you like to wander off and do stuff when things are going on, I think there's more appeal there than you perhaps realise. So the Hamish question is, what happens if this is massively popular? What happens if you hugely exceed what you expect to do because Hamish had his thing pretty much all sorted and ready to go and then it was very popular and because it was very popular suddenly things could be done a bit better because I don't think it's unfair to say that in terms of appearance and relative beauty um, the, the mongoose isn't going to win in the looks fight with the negative supply <laughs> Because <laughs> the negative, yeah. you know, it's beautifully made. It looks lovely, and and the mongoose is a very, a very functional. It'll do the same job, and it'll do it brilliantly. But um, and I want to point out, extremely durable and extremely it weighs, durable. It probably weighs as much as the negative supply. It's uh, it's a very beefy piece of plastic. But yes, it's not beautifully machined aluminum. Yeah. Um. So what if the the uh, if the Kickstarter is outrageously successful, and if you get way more money? Would that change 
anything that you're doing or or have you taken the good no. long look at the pixelation code? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I like, okay, I manufacture things uh, that are not cameras um, industrially, right? And so I I have some experience having, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of stainless steel molds cut for injection molding for, you know, not my personal projects, but uh, for work, right? I, I know better than to embark on an injection molding project. Um, I also understand what it takes to scale up 3D printing and how fast I can scale it up and how many people I would need to run them. Um, and I'm, you know, okay, I one, I don't think I'm going to sell more than, I think if I sold 200 units, I would, I would be doing pretty good, right? If I sell less than 100 units, uh, it probably was not worth my time, but I'll probably continue. You know, if I don't make uh, 30 grand, uh, you know, it won't even pay for FCC testing and this project's going in the garbage, but I think it'll pretty easily make 30 grand. It's at least at that price, uh, just selling to labs. But, um, I think one, it's really, really unlikely that more than 200 people are going to buy this thing because it's so expensive. And, you know, I wish I could make something that everybody you need to has. stop but... calling it so expensive. You're, okay. Whoever's okay. handling your PR is standing behind you shaking their heads in disgust. <laughs> no, but I want to be honest about it, right? I think there's, <laughs> yeah, but that's there's, like, fine. A lot but of stop calling I, it so expensive. I, oh, my goodness. Okay. You I think... mean, it's... Okay. Thank you, Graham. Uh, <laughs> beep. Um, no, so, you know, okay, if I, if I sell more than 200, I am probably going to have to hire uh, one or two college kids to do all of the pick and place of the electrical components while I solder. Right. Um, the other thing that I'm going to do is like one, I know I'm not going to change the production method. I might change the scale. Uh, the other thing is I'm going to sell them in timed batches. Right. So, um, you know, while I might, I'm shooting for, and you know, this might get pushed back a month or so, but it's not going to get pushed back a year. Uh, and hopefully I will be even faster, but you know, I'm not going to promise people that I'm going to be faster than I promised them I'm going to be. Uh, that would be ridiculous. But, um, you know, the first batch I'm hoping to ship around December, the second batch will ship in January. The third batch will ship in February. Like I, I, they're like, the longer you wait buying this Kickstarter, the more expensive it's going to get, but more importantly, like the slower I'm going to ship. And so I'm not going to promise, uh, units faster than I know I can scale up to fill those, uh, orders. And while it would be great to sell a million of these things and go spend a month and a half in China at an injection molder machine shop and watch them cut the tooling, like that's, I'm not going to, no, it's, they're just going to be made just like this. You know, yeah. the three engineering changes of, of minor tweaks to the, the fit and tolerance will happen on my desk, which are uh, basically about the size of screw holes. I had to send some of the beta tests with glue in the screw holes because I got a printer printing so well that the screw holes were so big that the, the screw teeth didn't grab them. Anyway, you know, little things like that. But yeah, they'll all be produced on uh, pretty good 3d printers these days um nothing will be injection molded i'm not going to go have them machined i'm not going to start like okay if i sell a million units then yeah sure but i mean are there even a million people that shoot film it's not going to happen i'm just, I'm just going to make bar downloads there must be at least a million yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, john i'm interested because you shoot more than i do uh, which is 
a low bar to hit, admittedly. But you know, you you are shooting a lot and so developing a lot, and so this is more likely to be of use to somebody like you than it is to somebody like me. What are your thoughts on it? And and have you got any more questions for Ethan about it? Uh, my initial thoughts are that I immediately want one and to sell my flatbed scanner and do all my medium format and large format with the pixelator and then do all the 35mm with the mongoose. Mm-hmm. That seems to make, like, time-wise, that makes perfect sense and quality-wise, it makes sense as well. Um, yeah. Space. You know, so I've got six roles that I'm about to develop tomorrow and I know... Like even though I've kind of optimized the process regards like developing them in batches and then putting them on the scanner while I develop the next uh, not develop process the next ones. Um and I can kind of run all that in parallel while having cups of tea, making my lunch, doing a few bits around the house, like doing some emails, or whatever. If I had a mongoose for that, I could just develop them all, let them dry, come back, and then just get them all scanned within what half an hour probably you know and get them all on my computer and that that seems a lot more optimized than my current workflow mm. um that's incredibly appealing when i because i tend to shoot and develop in large batches mm-hmm. to be able to actually just blitz through all that to get it digitized would would be great um, endorsed by john whitmore by now yeah. by now um so i i have i guess two follow-up questions for one for john and one for uh, you ethan so for john because you've got a is it an epson v750 at the moment the v750 pro actually v750, so, so we'll discuss how good a deal you're going to do for me on <laughs> you still like me um and for, for ethan depends how quickly i get on the kickstarter doesn't it <laughs> yeah um and for ethan Obviously, we haven't talked about it yet, but I know it's a question that got asked a lot when you shared the initial um, teaser video. Um, One twenty film. Uh, the the thing that you're kickstarting is thirty five mil only because it's using the sprockets to pull things through. But you have said that you there is a way forwards for making a one twenty um, add on for this. So uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I want to point out is like take this with a grain of salt because I don't. I'm not promising this because I don't want to make any, I don't want to sell anybody things on vaporware or promises that, you know, I, I am not a hundred percent sure will come through, but the, you know, I put this thing up yesterday on Reddit and it had like uh, 800 upvotes and, and 90 something comments, 30% of which were like, Hey, can I get this in 120? Um, there's a couple of reasons why I did not make it in 120 to start is like one, I need to release a product reasonably quickly in less than eight months because it's expensive to just sit here and tinker on this all day. I should be printing cameras right now. Um, the other reason is that, you know, this thing could certainly handle medium format if I made, um, you know, rubber scroll wheels and a film gate large enough to take it. And in fact, it could work with exactly the same firmware that's on the control box. But, um, how much time are you actually saving by, automating the scanning of a roll of let's say 12 frames of six by six or 10 frames of six by seven or you know eight frames of six by nine like okay if, if you're a lab it makes sense but but if you're if you're john and you've shot let's say two rolls of medium format uh okay it's going to take you some time to do it with the pixelator but also you know, there's not that many frames there. And so I didn't see an immediate need for it. That being said, okay, if the 
you know, it'll start being profitable to me minorly if the Kickstarter breaks something like 150 grand, which, you know, I don't know that it will, but if it does at that, at that point, it sort of starts paying for my time and itself to be produced. Um, and there has been so much interest in 120. I think, you know, in a month I could knock out a 120 module, which I'm hoping will be kind of an easy sell because it'll be somewhere around half the price of the mongoose, uh, with the control box and the scanner module to just sell a scanner module. Um, and then, you know, I will have like a built in market who gets it for, you know, half price cause they already have the control box. Um, it's something that, that I've been, uh, thinking about. I kind of dismissed because I thought, you know, you're not going to save that much time over using a pixelator. It's 10 times as expensive, at least if not 15. And, you know, what, what is scanning nine frames? Also, you know, most of my film, uh, I only get one good frame per roll. So, you know, <laughs> doesn't save me any time. Yeah, I mean, speaking as somebody who's using old gen scanning technology, uh, you know, I've got a V five hundred, and I actually find scanning one twenty more frustrating than scanning thirty five mil because it, it it will only do like a couple of frames at a time, and yep. it's um, not good at detect but getting the frame positioning right. So it's often getting like half of one thing, and and uh, the most recent roll I scanned was a very really springy roll of Berger um, or Burger and um, boy was that a pain in the neck just trying to hold it down to close the flimsy gate on it so yeah, um, yeah I think that there are definitely I mean I, I, I don't have a pixelator yet but say, personally I really just want to use that pixelator for doing 4x5 oh. although once John's given me I, I think we've moved to giving me now his scanner <laughs> that'll solve all <laughs> those problems how generous um, do you think I am? Incredibly, John. Incredibly. That's what I've always said about you. Generous John. That's why we call you that. In <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I also have an Epson flatbed. And if anything is curly, those negative carriers are terrible. Mm -hmm. And I've thought multiple times to myself about building a pixelator type of 3D printed thing just to hold the damn negatives flat on my Epson. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's some benefit to having like a a bi-level uh dual s-curved film plane uh for medium format and like i think it's an obvious buy for a lab right that that has 10 rolls to do every time you know they're they're open for business um i just i was not sure that there was enough sort of home demand of people batch developing 120 but you know i've been pleasantly surprised so far after i released a 29 second video yesterday on the internet um and so yeah, I mean, it'll be the first thing I do is make a 120 version if if this, uh, you know, winds up making any money. Yeah, well, we'll be crossing our fingers for it. Uh, it seems unlikely, but I have to ask you, just because <laughs> you are incapable of ever sitting still, um, is there anything else that you're mucking around with at the moment uh, that we should know about? Oh, yeah, what's what's my time limit, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. you got five minutes, go. <laughs> Okay, um, so this is a market that doesn't necessarily appeal to me or many of your listeners in our community, but it has some overlap is that um, telecines are like $300,000 sometimes. Um, and I don't know that I'm going to build like a, you know, one to one time telecine, but I think, you know, uh, I think for about two grand, I could build 
a machine that does a pretty darn good job of digitizing 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, and Super 8 videos at about one frame per second with sprocket detection. And so I don't really know much about that world. Like, um, I it it's just expensive and hasslesome to make film video. I, I use a Sony to make video and you know yell at people on YouTube. Um, but I think there has been some interest in that and maybe uh if if those you know if i could sell 100 units at 200 grand it would pay for the development time and the parts to build you know extra motors and tension sensors and camera mounts and like you know kind of just a big two by two by two foot box that digitizes 35 millimeter or down to super eight film uh, so that was something that i was kind of interested in the other thing is i um have been selling these uh, Polaroid scan trays that hold your Polaroids off of the scan bed so you don't get Newton rings. And they hold them in perfect alignment so you can batch scan four at a time without having to change uh, where your scan boxes are in Epson scan or whatever you're using. Um, I've been selling a ton of those through Brooklyn Film Camera. I actually just shipped a second box, which the first one was unfortunately uninsured and got lost uh, to to Paul at Analog Wonderland. And they're going to start carrying them. And I'm working on some deals with people in other... I'll, I'll only sell those through like one supplier per current uh you know they can have exclusive distribution if they want so long as they keep can you make them um, an instax wide version of that as well please yeah so instax wide um peel apart like fp uh 100c um uh, instax square instax mini will all fit um and then there is a second one so that's four per sheet and you just align them at the corner like you would on a flatbed and then um I have an Instax Mini one, which nobody is selling yet, but I'm sure it'll come where you can do eight Instax Minis on, on one sheet. And that, you know, it makes the scan quality much better because you don't get Newton rings, and it uh, mm-hmm. also makes it much faster because of, um, you know, alignment issues. But, you know, I've been selling a ton of those, and uh, it's time for me to get a laser cutter. There was – I had to take some uh, – some back from uh, Brooklyn film camera the last time because some Jamoke sat on the laser and uh, knocked it out of alignment. I, whatever, I'll replace them for free. It's not a big deal, but um, you know, it's going to be nice to have my own laser. And I have promised to only promise myself that I would only buy this laser the size of my car uh, after I get this Kickstarter launch because I don't want two half finished products. That's, you know, the, the, the car size laser is going to be annoying anyway. Um, buying one of those maybe next week, which will take a month to come. And so uh, I'm thinking about building some cameras up to 20 by 24 and some self-developing backs and maybe some box camera kits and other, you know, laser typey stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, just a couple of bits and pieces, as always. Um, John, uh, clearly Ethan will make anything. What do you want him to make for you? What do you want, anything you want to throw on the pile uh, for Ethan? Uh, uh, I don't know. Something to do with, I've just got myself that massive... Uh, 20 by 24 copy camera cool. uh, so yes, oh, yes. accessories that i can use with that <laughs> a, a butter grip for his uh, 20 by yeah, 20 <laughs> um can it take, you move it takes that like copy two... camera around no oh. it's like i have to take it all apart to be able to move it it take it took us three people took three people to get it in the back of my car wait john did it come with a lens uh yeah it's got uh, i don't know what sort it's a Rank Xerox, like it's an 80 inch lens and it just awesome. covers 20 by 24 as far as I can tell. 
Cool. Well, maybe I'll have some cameras and bags to sell you. But um, like to be clear, the best I've ever done is like two major products a year. Like I got I I mean, I got I can run my mouth all day. This is why we started having guests on the homemade camera podcast is like I I got to complete something once in a while. You know, uh, we got to talk to some other people who made some good stuff. Um, so we'll see how long it takes. I mean, any of these things would take six months to develop ish to the point where i can manufacture them but i'm i'm excited about laser time buying some goggles for sure <laughs> it sounds fun well anybody who has been uh, inspired by everything that ethan has been going on about this evening should pretty much go and check out cameradactyl.com to see all the fun stuff that you've already got for sale on there um it's a lovely website what i love about all of your stuff is just the the fun the fun cut i mean you can get them in black if you want to but why would you when you can get so many beautiful things in so many fun funky colors it's a lovely website you do awesome stuff there but more importantly do go and check out the kickstarter when it launches on tuesday so i'm guessing the best thing to do is to be following you on instagram and twitter right ethan because that's where you'll be putting out links as soon as they appear instagram yeah and i'll change the camera homepage to have a link uh, to it when it goes live yeah, and your Instagram handle is just at cameradactyl. At cameradactyl. Yeah, yep. and we'll have the links to that in the show notes. Um, and uh, yeah, so please, if if you're well, even if you're not thinking, maybe it's for me, you, me, or you. Well, if you want to buy it for me, that's fine. Crack on. Um, but do go and check it out because what Ethan has made is a really awesome thing. Um, and if you think it might be for you, clearly get on it early because the sooner you get on there, the cheaper it's going to be for you. By now, endorsed by John Whitmore. <laughs> Don't let that put you Five off. Stars. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> Five stars, yes, exactly. Well, four stars uh, was a day late because of the postage, therefore knock a star off. That's the way these things work, right? Um, Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. It is always a delight catching up with you and hearing what you're up to. And I really hope that this is um, just the start of you bringing all your multiple skills together and doing more stuff with electronics because um I, I, you know it, it's exciting seeing this stuff start to happen and as people like you and um, steve lloyd who we mentioned earlier and who's working with dave walker on some very fun stuff and uh, it's going to open up a lot of avenues in analog photography that have been closed or very prohibitively expensive in, and um yeah, I'm really excited to see where all of this goes. It's really fun. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Graham. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, I think we should probably get out of here because, um, you know, we've bent people's ears for long enough. Um, John, is there anything that you've got going on this week you need to let people know about? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think uh, myself and Ethan are going to try and do some sort of YouTube broadcast, aren't we, next week as well. So uh, stay tuned for that. So yeah. any idea when that's going to be? Is that going to be on Tuesday? It's possibly going to be on Tuesday, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> You're right. such a salesman. Did you go to the same school Same school of salesman as Ethan? Well, I, was, I was thinking that John and I would work out the details after the podcast, not thinking that we might, uh, you know, my, Promote my it on sales the podcast. are poor, Graham. Oh, uh, really? I had no... This is no way a recurring feature in people of your skill set. Um, John, you want, to go, you want to go live when uh, this thing goes live? Yeah, I think that would be... It's something different, isn't it? I don't think I've ever seen anyone do a live broadcast for the launch of their Kickstarter. Because you could do like a live Q&A as well, try and answer some of those questions that inevitably you're going to get. Sure. Um, 
that during that period. I, I want I want you guys to be on there just before it launched so you can do a countdown. Can we get a countdown? Can we have you yes. on there like five and do a countdown? Yeah, sure. Why not? Oh, good. <laughs> this is right. This the is big happening. Red button. So um, follow John at the Dark Shed and follow Ethan at Cambridactyl to see what time this is going to be happening, and it'll be happening on the YouTube channel. Dark Shed Live. Um, uh, that sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. And yes, Ethan's going to be there. So if you've got questions about it, then perfect time to ask these things whilst you're frantically mashing the buy it now button. Or not buy it now, but back this uh, button to get it cheap. Um, yeah, brilliant. Uh, as this show goes out, um, Sony 16% is carrying on. Rachel's underexposed show went out last week. Uh, this week... Um, <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, Graham? Uh, I think all of the hosts of have... <laughs> So this week it's supposed to be my show. Um guys, you're not gonna believe this. I'm running a bit late. Uh so I suspect that by the time you hear this, there will be something on the Sunday sixteen presents feed. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to flip around till we have got some listener content for this week, which I am going to put out uh, on Tuesday uh, or Wednesday morning, depending on when I get around to it. Um, so that will be out there. That's really good. Uh, that's Billy Sanford talking about making cyanotypes. So well worth a listen. Um, and hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, the first <laughs> my first effort of making a show will be out before the end of the week. Um, but much like... Ethan and the 120 version of this, it's not a guarantee. You know, don't don't sign up for Sony 16 Presents just because you're expecting that to be there, because it might not, because you never know. We might not get enough money coming in to make it worthwhile, the FCC, etc., etc., etc. You know how these things work. Um, but please do go and check it out. There are already enough great shows on there by my co-hosts and by the uh, listeners who have submitted already we've got more stuff coming um, which i'm really excited about so thank you very much for everybody who's got in touch with that we will be back again very soon on the sunny 16 podcast week we might even have a sneaky little backing paper coming out i might think we'll have a backing paper this weekend um, we might sneak one out because we've had at least a couple of emails seems worth it to me yes. so um so knowing that now maybe get some more emails and if you've been holding off thinking well backing paper just isn't happening anymore then get get them into us um and i think we're gonna say that uh anybody that we've had a few entries in for the too sick too spurious competition i'm gonna say if you haven't got them into us by next Saturday, which is that is, that's the noise of finding out there, the twelfth. So, uh, as you listen to this, if you listen to this, it's just come out. You've still got a few days to get it in. Um, email in your worst film failures that are still still lovely. Get those into us by Saturday um, to be included, and we'll get that sorted out very soon. Um, we will play you out now. Uh, let's see if I can remember how the end of the show goes. We will play you out with... Uh, how music. do people get in touch, Graham? Oh, yeah. Whoops. Thanks, John. <laughs> uh, there's a secret knock you need to know. Um, you can get in touch with us at sunny16podcast at gmail.com or if you want to write to us about anything going on at sunny16presents.com um, at sunny16presents at gmail.com. Please get in touch with us there or if you've got an idea for listener content you'd like to make, please do. Some people already have done, which is great. But, yeah, sunny16podcast at gmail.com if you want to write us an email for backing paper or submit something for the too sick too spurious uh, competition or the cheap shots challenge on the subject of music which is ongoing and we have started to get entries in for that which is fabulous um i can't wait to hear how my co-hosts are progressing with that uh, don't spoil it for me john i'm sure you're already doing very very well with it don't it really 
No. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, before John quite helpfully interrupted me, um, yes, play you out with music from Rachel's wonderful band, Rocker, which you can find on Spotify and on Amazon and wherever fine music can be found. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at Sunny16Podcast. Uh, and John, as we already mentioned, is at Darkshed, at The Darkshed. And Ethan is at Akamredactyl. Until we speak to you again, wherever that may be, listeners, uh, take good care of yourselves. Thank you so much for tuning in, and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.